And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. Welcome to The Real Investment Show. I am Danny Ratliff here with John Penn for your Financial Fitness Friday edition. Thank you guys for joining us. A lot to get into today. So uh, jobs numbers, I think that's what everybody is awaiting. Marcus had a little bit of a breather here this week compared to what we've seen over the last month. But where's are we getting set up for that Santa Claus rally? We certainly could be. Um, you know, we're kind of waiting to see what happens here. The markets and the Fed seem to be at odds. Markets are anticipating now up from three, five rate cuts here. And the Fed meeting starts, FOMC meeting starts on Tuesday. We'll find out what exactly they're going to do on Wednesday. Um, jobs report today. You know, this week has been a little bit lighter. Initial jobless claims, ADP seem to be softening or weakening a tad bit. So it'll be interesting to see what this U.S. unemployment rate is. Um, U.S. hourly wages to get into today and then consumer sentiment. You know, John, we talked about this a week or so ago when you, you and I were on the show together. And, you know, sentiment has changed quickly where, you know, it was really in the dumps. We saw those negative three months in a row. Then uh, November was just gangbusters. Mm -hmm. But, you know, still we start to see market breadth participate or, or participation as a whole improve in October. But, you know, if you look at the Dow, it's still considerably underperforming the S&P 500 and, of course, the NASDAQ, which is so tech heavy. And, you know, being that even the S&P has quite a bit um, more in tech, you know, Dow's underperformed by about 10%. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that is the struggle I think this year that many people are facing is that if you're not all in the tech or heavily overweighted to that index, you're likely underperforming. You know, bonds are still in a, in a rough spot. But, you know, you came across an article. I thought this was interesting. Should you T-bill and chill? Yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk a little <laughs> bit about that today. How, you know, we talked about year-end stuff last week. How can we best put funds aside? And, you know, what are those year-end tips to kind of make sure that you're checking all those boxes? So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But why don't we get into, um, oh, you know what, and speaking of tech, AMD is fighting NVIDIA for the chip maker title. Um, you know, that's an interesting one. So their new their CEO, Lisa Su, says that the new chip they just launched is better than their competitors. And, you know, stock seems to be thinking the same at the moment. It's been up quite a bit here over the last couple of days. It's a stock we've been in and out of. And full disclosure, we do own. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, this is interesting and kind of another big push for, you know, the tech space. Yeah, it just kind of seems like that's where every, everything's been this year. Um, I know it's it's been a, how can I say, a interesting or sometimes a little bit of a challenging year for investors, because if you if you if you didn't put your money onto those six or seven names, I mean you're kind of flat for the year, yeah. right? And two, I mean, you know, if you if you have a portfolio where, you know, you're just not all 100% in stocks. Let's say you own some stock exposure, whether those are individual equities. You know, let's say exchange traded funds or mutual funds that own equities. Hey, let's say you have some bond exposure in there too. I know you were talking a little bit just about T bill and chill. We'll get into that. Maybe you're taking advantage of some of the higher yields on the short end of the yield curve. But you know, if you've had exposure to the long end of the yield curve too, some of those, you know, with long term bonds, you know, I tell you, in, in October specifically, 
when the when the interest rate on the 10-year Treasury, Danny, got up to 5% or maybe even a little bit north of 5%, and you really saw those bond prices on those long-duration bonds really pull down. I mean, I don't know about you, but I was getting more questions around bond prices at, at that time than stock prices, yep. right? And since then, you've seen now, I mean, now the yield on the 10-year is what? You know, 4.18-ish. I think, I think it's 4.18 this morning. So, I mean, that's about an what about an 80 little over an 80 basis point pullback in the yield on the 10-year treasury since then so so you've seen it kind of bring a little bit of relief not only to the equity markets but also just to, to bond prices too where now you're starting to see you, you've had a little bit of relief in your in those long-term bond prices and it, i think that helps because you know investors you're not seeing that red on your screen or it's not as red as it was right yeah, yeah you feel a little bit better yeah. about it yeah, and, and so markets this morning, you know, pre-market, we're seeing the markets relatively flat, uh, down just a tad bit. Bonds, interest rates, like you mentioned, were about 4.178 at the moment, mm -hmm. so up slightly from from yesterday. And, and these numbers are likely going to bounce around a bit. Sure. You know, I would suspect that, you know, we've talked about how markets got a little bit overbought. Um, rates were the same way. We'll likely see a little bit of pressure on both here for a moment. Mutual fund distribution. So a lot of people have asked, like, why, what's going on right now that, you know, we may see a bit of a pullback. Number one, from a technical perspective, a little bit overbought. Um, number two, you begin to see mutual funds who have to pay out capital gains they've they've incurred throughout the year. Um, they're, they'll be paying those out typically over this week and next. So it does put a little bit of pressure on the sell side. Now, that could set us up nicely for a Santa Claus rally. And, you know, last year we waited, did not see it. Um, you know, usually you see that because of consumer spending, people traveling, people spending more money during the holiday season. It all numbers suggest that that's going to continue. Now, we've talked about the, the amount of credit that's out there, uh, the amount of people that are doing buy now, pay later. These are all things that, you know, I think that we're going to have to watch for and be cautious because we may get into the beginning of next year and people say, you know, we, we've talked about this where everybody goes on a diet. Well, you, you may, you know, put a lock on your wallet, too. So maybe a little bit different. Yeah, I think so, too. And I know the, the buy now, pay later is very popular, especially around this time of year when it comes to holiday spending and holiday shopping. And if they're, you know, those buy now, pay later programs can actually be used. They can be a very useful tool if used correctly. But what you have to watch out for, I'm not picking on PayPal here. I mean, it's, it's, it's worked very well for a lot of folks out there. But if you don't pay off that balance, I think it's within roughly six months. I mean, then that's where your interest really kicks in and you're going to be paying at least 28% on whatever you purchase. So you, you really got to watch it with those buy now, pay laters. So it'll be interesting to see how that, if that is a factor as we get into the beginning of next year. Yep, absolutely. So we're going to be looking for these non-farm payrolls today. Uh, they think they're expanded 190,000 up from 150 here last month. You know, the interesting thing here is that good news could be bad news in the sense that more people working, maybe that puts a little bit more pressure on the Fed. And those expectations just don't line up with what the market believes uh, that, you know, we're seeing CME Fed forecast, you know, has been really uh, the, the numbers have been suggesting that, you know, by June now they've already brought that forward that we're going to start seeing rate cuts in in March. And so that's a big change. Now, what are the catalysts? I don't know. I don't see that right now. I think it's probably a little bit further down the road. I think that's kind of what we take at the moment, that it's going to be some time. The Fed's going to have to have something that happens that, to really in, give them the inclination to increase interest rates or, excuse me, decrease interest rates. I don't envision them, them increasing them right now. Now, they continue to say, and I suspect they'll say that again here next Wednesday, hey, we may, we're going to, we have the liberty if we need to, 
to increase interest rates and do another hike. Um, but right now, there's just nothing suggesting that it should. You look at, you know, future forward guidance from, you know, CEOs, CFOs, it seems to be a little bit tamer than what we'd expected. Um, you know, they're citing a number of things, you know, we've talked about, um, you know, just what they envision in the future, that it may be a little bit rougher. We're hearing companies talking about, you know, reducing headcount. You know, Wells Fargo came out this week, earlier in the week saying, hey, um, they did not have as many, they, they retained a lot more employees. They didn't have as much turnover. They're looking to become more efficient, start making cuts. We're hearing more and more of that. So I think that puts pressure on a number of things. And so we have to be cautious with that. But when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit about that T-bill and chill. Uh, Want to get into healthcare costs and retirement. How can you more effectively use funds and use the accounts and tools that are out there to take advantage of? There's some new laws that are coming into effect here on January 1st. So we want to make sure you guys are prepared, aware, and ready. So you're listening to The Real Investment Show. I'm Danny Ratliff with John Penn. We'll be right back. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Welcome back to the Real Investment Show. I'm Danny Ratliff here with John Penn. So Lots of talk about bonds. John, you know, you and I talk frequently about just common questions that, that we receive. Mm-hmm. And I think you, you just alluded to it a bit ago that, you know, a lot of people have been having a lot of questions about bonds and what's the strategy around it? What are the best things to do? Where do you put funds? And, you know, we've talked about kind of the longevity or what's the objective of funds. But, you know, there's an article on Morningstar says, should you T-bill and chill the pros and cons of taking refuge in cash now that yields are hovering above 5%? And this is on the short end of the yield curve because remember the yield curve is still inverted and and this has historically always been a very good indicator that a recession is on the horizon at some point on average i think it's around 15 months from when the yield curve inverts um but then it's really about when it uninverts is when it suggests that there's there's struggles mm-hmm. right um so what are your thoughts and takeaways on this well, I'll tell you, for folks out there that are you know, taking advantage of these higher yields on the short end of the yield curve, because you know, as Danny mentioned, the yield curve is inverted because, as everybody knows, the Fed has been so aggressive with raising short-term interest rates, at least up to this point. You know, you know, over the last 12 months, for the 12 months we, uh, you know, through October of this year and the previous 12 months, over $900 billion of, of assets have moved into you know, money market funds that are paying, you know, give or take right now about 5%, yep. right? And really, you know, earlier this year, you know, the the yield on the on the three-month T-bill, it was, you know, nearly, what, 5.5%? And that's the, I mean, that's the highest level since December of, you know, 2000. So, I mean, it's, it's easy to get attracted to this. And there's no issue with, you know, hey, if you have some emergency funds or money set off to the side, that really isn't for your longer-term let's say some longer term, the longer term growth portion of your portfolio, hey, utilize these yields on the short end of the yield curve and, and maximize your cash there. 
but does it make sense to put all your money there? I mean, is that I, I that is the uh, the argument where you will hey, it feels great to be earning, let's say on a you know, five point three, five and a quarter ish percent right now, but will rates stay this high forever? Right? Yeah, I, th I think the bigger risk you face right here is a reinvestment risk. Yeah. I mean, what do you face when when yields inevitably come down? And so a lot of people who do have the majority of their funds in say T-bills or money market, you know, some maybe for other reasons, right? I've talked to a lot of people and visited mm -hmm. with folks that say, hey, I've got money in the bank. It is not earning anything at XYZ Bank or, you know, it, most of the major institutions, the really large banks, they're not paying you. Mm -mm. You know, I, I went Still. through and looked a while back. It's like 0.01. And if you have a relationship with us with X amount of money, we'll pay you. We'll double that to 0.02. Um, Wow. Thanks, guys. Hey, from a percentage standpoint, just the increase, it sounds yeah, great. It but sounds when you look fantastic. at it, you're like, well, hold on a second. Yeah. Well, so you start doing the math and you say, well, <laughs> well if I had $100,000 at 0.02 versus you had $100,000 at point at five, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're talking about $5,000. Um, so you have one that's not even going to send you a 1099. And what they are, what they're banking on is that you and I are lazy and that we're not going to move our funds. And they don't make it easy maybe to go link it up online. And so you actually have to go walk into the bank, go get a check, deposit it somewhere else. I mean, there, there's a number of reasons. But they're banking that we just won't do it. And that, that safety and the convenience of using them is so great that they don't feel like they have to. And they've been okay for the most part. But there are places that want your money that will pay you to store it. So we've had a lot of people who've set up just brokerage accounts, mm -hmm. you know, on their own and they go say, Hey, I'm going to leave it in money market. I'm going to go buy cash. These may be funds that I need for taxes. Um, they may be funds that I need for, you know, just emergency savings, but get more bang for your buck. I mean, that's what this is all about. Um, so I, I fear that reinvestment risk at some point, because, you know, if you do see inflation come down, if we do see the fed aggressively cut rates here in the, in the future, where do you go then? Mm-hmm. And, I, and then you have the other, you know, I think there's two sides to this coin, John, in the sense that you have people that have money that's been in cash, they're not earning anything, they want to get a little bit more for it. And then you have the other camp who says, hey, market's going to crash. I'm going to put everything into this and we're going to wait it out and, and then at some point we'll buy again. If you can do it, great. Now, you may have to wait because a lot of times we, we think the market will do one thing and then what happens? You know, additional stimulus, something comes up, the market dynamics shift. Uh, we see positive things, you know, occur. It's not out of the question. I know the the, the negative narrative is much easier to, to be in that camp. But I would still, you know, with all of the things that are out there, I still think that we're, we're you know, cautiously optimistic. I think so, too. And so you make a great point. So let's say you're in the camp right now where you're saying, okay, I'm just going to put all my money in my T-bills and I'm going to chill. I like that T-bill and chill. It's got a good name to it. Feels good, right? So let's say the markets do correct. Let's say equities pull down. Let's say we get into a more volatile market next year. Nobody knows what the future holds, right? I mean, nobody knows what this market's going to do, but let's just say that happens. At that time, if that happens, and let's say you have some T-bills that are maturing, you got some cash coming back into your account, will you have the discipline and emotionally, would you be able to nibble? Uh, that's a great question. At equities at that point. Because still to this day, Danny, how many people do we talk to where, well, you know what, John, back in the great financial crisis in 2008, I went all to cash. I went all to cash. And I waited. I was going to get back in. They're still in cash. And I was going to get back in. I was going to wait for that market to give me the opportunity to get back in. And it's 2023. 
and they haven't been back in since. Well, right? the problem with that is that, and it's hard. They haven't been getting paid either. That's true. All those years because cash has paid absolutely nothing. And if you think that we're going to get back to where interest rates go down, or we're going to the Fed's going to have to come out and be more aggressive, and inflation's coming down, and growth prospects don't look as great. Well, then you need to figure something else out. So do you just sit in T-bills or do you start going a little bit longer on the yield curve? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the other thought is, is that, okay, well, so say we do get into this this time where, you know, markets are volatile. We get a we get into a bear market. Something happens. Um, Rates at that point come down aggressively. And then what happens? Do we see the Fed? Do we see more monetary policy, more fiscal policy, more stimulus dollars? more inflationary pressure because of those things? I don't think that's out of the question. So at that point, you're going to have to be nimble and your strategy will have to change once again. And so, you know, instead of just T-bills, John, do you start to look at intermediate? Do you look mm -hmm. at longer term? Do you own a bit of stocks? Or maybe you take the contrarian view and go buy some defensive stocks. You know, those have been out of favor. Those have underperformed. But... Do you have a little bit of all of that? So, you know, some of it, you know, Wayne Gretzky, and, and Lance has used this before. <laughs> he says, uh, you know, the, the key to it is to skate where the puck is going, not to where it's been. And I, and I think that's a really important kind of thing to think about when we're talking about investing. Was Okay, where do we need to be next? How can we prepare for what may or may not occur, right? You've got to think about probabilities and percentages. I think so too. And as investors, all of us, myself included, it is really easy to look in the rear view mirror and look back and say, well, you know what, Danny, if I just would have kept my money in my money market this year, I would have been better off. Or if yeah. I would have just had all my money in three month T-bills this year, I would have been better off. You know, looking back and seeing what's already happened to say, oh, if I just would have done this, that's... You know, unfortunately, you, you markets just, they just don't give us that luxury. I wish right? I was all in tech. You kidding? Are you, man, if I would have put all my money in what the, yeah. the Magnificent Seven this year, no stress, right? But if I was your advisor and came to you earlier this year and said, okay, Danny, here's your financial plan. This is what you, you and Michelle are trying to accomplish. I think you should put, we're going to put all your money into these six or seven names. You would have looked at me and said, John, you're crazy. See ya. Right? Yeah. Now, if I would have done that, it worked out. You're going to think I'm brilliant, right? Correct. But what if I got it wrong? That could be a disaster. Or what if you hold it and then it, it turns again, right? Nobody wanted to touch those last year. And now, you know, those were the most favored stocks. Um, so I think that's, that's a great point, John, that you can't put all your eggs in one basket. And we don't mean, you know, like you have to have them all in. You know, some people take that so literal. They're like, well, I'm going to have an investment account here, 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 here. And at every different firm, like, wow, that's just how that's unmanageable almost sometimes. Yeah. And, and it's a pain in the rear. But, you know, do you start to go out longer on the yield curve? And so we own long term bonds. And, mm -hmm. and a question we get frequently is, OK, guys, we're going to hold this until 2043. Like, <laughs> yeah. no, we're not going to hold something for 20 years. I mean, that's not the intent. The intent would be is that, you know, if things play out the way that we think they, they likely will, you're going to have some significant upside here at some point. Uh, you know, obviously we've been a little bit early to the game in that part, but I still think you see significant appreciation. And then you turn around and you have the ability to buy. You know, if that happens, so you know, you start thinking about it. This, this soft landing narrative, 
is going to be extremely difficult. They're trying to thread a needle here. And, and maybe they get it. Maybe this is the first time in over 20-some-odd years, 25, 26 years, that we actually get a soft landing. I don't know if that's the case or not. But I think the to get to where they want, you're likely going to see some pain. So do you, therefore, go out in longer-term intermediate treasuries? Do you still have some T-bills to give you flexibility? Do you kind of ladder these bonds out, ladder CDs out? You know, we talked about looking at objectives, but also looking at, you know, when do you need these funds? Mm-hmm. What is the long-term goal? And are you one of those people who has, the, I guess, the uh, intestinal fortitude to go out and say, okay, we're going to buy when things are bad. Things are much cheaper. And I think that's the key. I mean, you mentioned that earlier, how many mm-hmm. people that have been completely out of the market for 15 years. Yeah. And for all those years, really not earning much, if anything. Yeah, that was the challenge. You just, I mean, you really weren't earning anything, earning anything in your cash. I mean, two years ago, I mean, this, these money markets that we're talking about right now, I mean, they weren't paying even a quarter of a point, right? Yep. So at least you can use that to your, to your advantage now. Great point, Danny. All right, guys, we'll be right back after this break, but thanks for joining. Life is an illusion. Can't you see that love is everywhere? Step into the confusion. Can't you hear the sound that's in the air? investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com welcome back to the real investment show i'm danny ratliff with john penn so youtube chat is alive and well you have not already go to the real investment show on youtube go subscribe um you can actually see what john looks like is his does his voice match his body same thing about mr ratliff right oh it's all downhill over here buddy no you don't do look right here <clears throat> i've got a face for radio so no it's no 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 get out of here so you know youtube chat says what is the next magnificent seven well fun strats tom lee is has the highest prediction for 2024 and believes the S&P in 2024 will close at 5200. So yesterday closed at 4586, that'd be a 13% increase uh from here. Now, a lot of other predictions, a lot of people saying a lot of things, right? Um you've got from down in the dumps to you know, going to be volatile uh, JP Morgan has you at 4,200. Morgan Stanley, 4,500. Goldman Sachs, 4,700. B of A, 5,000. RBC, 5,000. Deutsche Bank, 5,100. And then Fundstrat, Tom Lee at 5,200 for the S&P end of 2024. It's a pretty wide range. And I think that's, that's pretty difficult. 
you know, number one, I, I'm not the biggest fan of forecasts. You know, I'm not either. We've seen them change, and it's so easy for somebody to flip flop on this because the narrative changes, things change. Um, but you got, you look like you got something to say. Well, we, we do I? Am I kind of mouthing you some do, things you over do, here? Yeah, I'm just so, chomping hey, at the bit. If, if you're watching on YouTube, you would know. There it is, John. He just can't contain himself here. No, so we get that question a lot, right? Yeah. Hey. uh... What do you think the market's going to do next year? Or what do you think it'll do two years from now? Not making light of this question. Get it a lot, actually. And we make some very educated decisions. And we do make some this, very right? education decisions around that. But my best response to that is it will be either higher or lower than it is now. That is all I can tell you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Sorry. Well, I mean, look, we're going to extrapolate all the data, look Absolutely. at all the things that are that are happening, looking at, you know, what do the trends look like and, you know, make very educated decisions around it. You know, the, the beauty of what we do now versus what we did even 10, 20, 30 years ago is the uh, access to information at a very quick pace. But you also have to be careful where you get that information from. And so, you know, here at Real Investment Advice, we do, you know, we crunch all the data here independently. And so if you've never gone to the website, either realinvestmentadvice.com, we've got a newsletter that comes out every Saturday. Lance, you know, spends a lot of time. And really what our writings are is kind of a continuation of our investment meetings. And, you know, really just we're taking notes and meeting minutes. Um, this is a great way to let people know what we think and mm -hmm. what's going on and what they should be concerned with and thinking about. But yeah, the, the data is all over the place. Um, and, and that's always a tough one. You know, 4,200 to 5,200 is a pretty wide range. Yeah, and I mean, I remember when I first got started in this in this industry, in the financial services industry, and that was back in the late 90s, you know, early 2000s, you know, the whole dot-com era. And I mean, I still remember being able to go to the old value line books and looking, oh, yeah. at, looking at, like, looking up quotes and getting data and, like, flipping the paper and the, those big binders that you would have to update all the time. And I remember, you know, in that same period of time, how everything really started transitioning online and how that the availableness of this data became, I mean, it was such a game changer. And I remember back then we thought we had data overload as things were getting online. And now you look at the we amount of data. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you're just bombarded 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So no wonder why. I mean, and you get all these different points of view and all these different points of perspective you as an investor today, it's it's it makes it very challenging. It's like, well, what information should I really use? Well, but in not making only that, my decisions, you, right? You you live in an echo chamber so often because you know social media, the way that these algorithms work. If you start watching or looking at certain types of videos, they're going to start giving you more of that. Mm -hmm. And so at some point, it, it kind of feeds itself, and and it's not necessarily a good thing because we need as an investor, you need to understand, you know, both sides. Okay. What are the pros and cons? What are the things that we're not looking at? I like to read oppo opposing views. Mm -hmm. Like I may have a view, but I know I'm not always right. Um, and I'm always going to have a view, but it also can change over time. And also, you know, you can learn a lot from somebody that thinks, uh, thinks differently. And I appreciate that. And I think that that's what most successful investors do a good job is they can take a, take a step back, be more pragmatic about it. Get a good understanding as far as, you know, okay, where could I be wrong? And, you know, that I think is really helpful. But, yeah, you know, it, it used to be if somebody was shot in Pakistan, you'd hear about it two weeks later, if that. And by the time the information got to you, it was like the game of telephone. Mm -hmm. And, and you now, you know, you're hearing about it in minutes, if not seconds. Not seconds. The way that the speed of information travels. And so, you know, be careful with these forecasts. They're going to be all over the place. Last year, most of these guys were wrong. Um 
you know, they have a tendency and they can likely be wrong again. And so I think that's tough. You know, I remember back when oil really crashed and when oil was like negative 30, uh, 35 bucks, um, of visiting with a long-term client, a, uh, oil and gas exec. And he said, Danny, what do you think? Did you, did you guys predict, you know, COVID, all these things. And I felt like we did a pretty good job mitigating risk. Yeah, uh, me too. That year. And so I said, well, and we, we kind of had an idea. Like, did what what did you guys think that the year was going to be um, this year for oil? He's like, well, he kind of laughed and smiled. He said, well, we thought it was going to be much differently than the way it's gone, right? Yeah. And I think those are always things that we have to be careful, right? There's there's those black swan events. There are things that come out. I mean, we can make decisions surrounding the information that we get. And that's what we're doing right now. And, you know, the, the Fed and the markets seem to be at odds. We'll see where the economy goes from here. If they can execute this soft landing, good for them. Uh, I, I think I think that's a difficult one, but do want to get into some some kind of tax planning stuff and an end of year. And so, you know, we, we talk a lot about this and how you can better make use of funds. Obviously, you know, Lance is talking quite a bit more about markets and, you know, growth and protection and that aspect. But, you know, there's all these other things that we need to be considering. You know, how do we keep more money in your pocket? How do we plan in a way to give you more flexibility? What are the rules, laws, things that are changing. And so we're going to spend the last little bit of the show today talking about that. But, you know, healthcare costs in retirement are astronomical. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, everybody's seen that, especially with inflation here over the last couple of years. But Employee Benefit Research Institute estimates a 65-year-old couple could need as much as $383,000 in savings to have a 90% chance of covering their healthcare expenses. This includes their premiums, deductibles, prescriptions, out-of-pocket cost, all of those things that are not cheap. So most people hear $383,000 and think, oh, my gosh, mm-hmm. how am I going to meet that? And, and listen, for some of you guys, it's going to be you may have a pension still. If you do, fantastic, good for you. Um, you you have other savings. It may not just all be in retirement. And that number scares people because they think, I don't have that much or I can't get to that much. Um, and, and so keep in mind, there's lots of ways to make up that number. And that's over a lifetime. And we're talking about for a couple, two people. But, you know, we talk a lot about HSAs. And you and I were having a conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we all talk regularly on, you know, what are things that we could do or we could do better? What are things that maybe new laws and changes and how do we need to be looking at this and how does the IRS interpret that or the attorneys look at, at certain things? And so um, an HSA, though, is a fantastic tool. We talked about this. Lance asked me, kind of put me on the spot Wednesday and said, quick, you're in stuff. What do you got? Boom. I was like, well, HSA, right? Now, we're going to spend a little bit more time on this because you brought up a really good point a bit ago. Um, so number one, you have to be on a high deductible health plan to have access to an HSA. Most of the time, your employer will have have an HSA if you're on a high-deductible health plan. They may not. You may have to go out on your own and go buy your own HSA. You know, basically set up the account, fund it. Um, now, funding for an HSA is $3,850 for an individual, $7,750 for a family. So you're not knocking the cover off the ball like you can in a 401k or you know any other type of account where you can put a little bit more into it. This one's this one's going to be, you know, I wish they'd give us more bandwidth here. Um, next year, we'll go up to 4150 mm-hmm. and 8300 for a family. So 4150 for an individual, um, plus an additional $1,000 for those 55 and older. 
Now, if you're contributing to an HSA and you are older, you're closer, you, you know, you're about to go on Medicare, you need to stop those contributions six months prior to make sure you don't disqualify them for that tax benefit. So the HSA is great, grows, funds go in tax-free, so you, you lower your income. They grow tax-free, and assuming you pull them out for retirement expenses, which you know, according to this survey, you're going to need to, they come out tax-free. But, John, so we, we talked about how we can use these, and you know, I, I alluded a little bit or talked about on Wednesday how you know, people get these confused with flexible spending accounts and mm-hmm. feel like they have to spend them instead of you know, using them and letting these funds grow. This is an account we want you to you know, have a little bit of cash. You get laid off. Something happens. You need to make premiums out of. You have this HSA there and some cash. But the remainder of it, we want you to invest those funds. That's right. Because um, unlike the flexible spending account, you use it or you lose it. Right? Correct. These funds can carry over. That's right. And you, you don't. And making those contributions to the HSA, you don't have a deadline of December 31st. You have up until your tax filing deadline for 2023 next year. Right. So you, you have some flexibility there. Yeah, and that's a great point. And so a lot of times we get questions like, I'm not sure if I have an FSA or an HSA. Mm-hmm. One good way to typically know is can you invest in one, right? And, and HSA don't always have investment options, but most more often than not, uh, most times they do. So an HSA typically does give you those options. FSA does not generally give you those types of options because you need to use it or lose it. Uh, we're going to talk more about this when we get right back on the other side of this break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Oh. Welcome back to the Real Investment Show, Financial Fitness Friday edition. I'm Danny Ratliff here with John Penn. So talk about year-end stuff what you what can you do you know how much it costs for an average couple in retirement on healthcare expenses so you know studies show three hundred eighty-three thousand dollars is needed we've heard you know anywhere from 350 to over 400 depending on what you've got um you know another way and so we talk about diversifying assets but we want to diversify accounts and as far as taxability give yourself give yourself some freedom as far as what you can do and so that is why we we like an hsa and you know when we talk about that it's because we want you to have resources you can pull from that aren't going to be taxable and you know another way as well we can save money is enrolling in medicare at the right time mm-hmm. um, and i think this is really important a lot of decisions surrounding this are um you know just overlooked maybe we're misinformed or given bad information um, but enrolling at the right time is really important because if you miss your enrollment period, that clock starts ticking. And now you you have a penalty that never goes away, but you also have a guaranteed period of enrollment. So they can't turn you down. So they can't say, well, you've got these pre-existing conditions. You get out of that window, you're in trouble. So now it becomes unattainable maybe or unaffordable 
And we also need to think about Medicare surcharges, IRMA, income-related monthly adjustment amount as far as the premium they put on your your Medicare premiums. So these are all things that need to be considered. John, what do you see probably the biggest hang-up with people with Medicare? Well, first, I think it's just confusing. You got yeah. all these different enrollment periods, and it's like, well, when do I enroll into Medicare? Or do I, if I'm still working... And let's say I work with an employer who has, you know, 20 or over 20, I think it's 20 or more employees. And if I'm, if, if I'm currently, let's say I'm still, let's say I'm 65 years young or I'm about to be 65 and I don't really plan on retiring yet. I really like what I do, or maybe I can't retire yet, or maybe I'm just deciding to work a little bit longer, but I'm covered. My, my employer provides my medical insurance coverage for me and I'm turning 65 do I need to sign up for Medicare or can I wait? A lot of questions around that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, so ideally if you're 65, you're not on an employer plan or your spouse is not, you do need to sign up for Medicare. Um, this is what's really costly for a lot of people within plans, especially at pre 65. If you retired at 60 or 62, you don't have an employer plan that you can carry with you retiree plan. That's when things get a lot more expensive. And so be cautious with this. You know, we want to make sure that you have ways to lower your adjusted gross income to reduce those premiums. But we also want to make sure you sign up at the right time. So, you know, when you turn 65, you have a seven month window, three months prior to your 65th birthday month, the month of your birthday and three months after. And so make sure you sign up within that window. Don't get caught and don't, you know, there's so many different ramifications associated with this. Please make sure you do it. Now, if you have COBRA, big mistake. A lot of people think COBRA is your employer health plan where you may be over 65 and you retire at, say, 68. And your employer says, oh, yeah, it's a credible plan. Well, it was while you were working, but the moment it goes to COBRA, it is not. And now you have an eight-month window. So make sure you take your your, your benefits or your, you sign up at the right time. Um, those are the two big things that I think we see on a regular basis. Uh, you know, the other thing right now, qualified charitable distributions, mm -hmm. talking about you know, how can you save some money you know, from if you're required to take required minimum distributions at the moment, you can, if you're charitably inclined, gift up to $100,000 directly out of the IRA or 401k and not have to pay taxes on it. Pretty nice. Great way to do it. So if you are you know, charitably inclined, you do that on a regular basis, I would certainly do that. Um, and then planning for long-term care. You know, We talked about those costs of health care. Long-term care is a really big one. And these are not cheap. There's a lot, the premiums aren't. Now, you're incentivized to get it at a younger age. You need to be cautious. You know, the old school, you know, kind of just like regular typical insurance you pay by the month or the year, a little bit more expensive. Also has the ability to go up in price. So, you know, we tend to prefer kind of the hybrid policies. I don't want to get too far in the weeds of that. But, um, you know, we spent a lot of time on this. One question, John, you and I have gotten a lot about. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is for... Anybody with kids, grandkids, you're putting funds aside, 529 plans, new rule coming uh, January 1st that's going to allow you to distribute these funds or roll them into a Roth IRA. Fantastic. So give us the ins and outs of it. So there's, that's, a, that's a big question that we get a lot of where we work with a lot of families who are great savers and they've put money aside for their children for college expenses for a 529. And the 529 was originally seen as the college savings account for the child, right? 
well, what if that child receives scholarships or grants? And what if all of the assets in that 529 account aren't used? Well, now what? So, so starting next year, you know, and there are some rules in place here. There's a little bit of vagueness. We're still waiting to see how all these rules come to play, right? But it could be that if that 529 has been in existence for the same designated beneficiary, so I set up, if I'm the owner of the 529 plan that I set up for one of my kids, and there is, un, and there is money left over in that 529, that 529 plan needs to be in existence for at least 15 years, and the funds in the 529 plan need to be there for at least five years. Well, those unleft dollars, the unused dollars that aren't used for education expenses, can be transferred, there's an opportunity to transfer that money into a Roth IRA for the child. So I have a 529 plan for my daughter. We could, if as, you know, she's out of college now, there's money left over, we could potentially move money from her 529 plan, those unused dollars into a Roth IRA. Now, next year, for folks that are under 50, the max that you can put into a Roth IRA is $7,000. So you could put in, you could move $7,000 from the 529 into the Roth IRA, but the aggregate limit. So let's just say in your 529 plan, maybe you're a super saver and you've got you know, $90,000 left in there. The most that you'll ever, the aggregate limit, the most that you can move from the 529 into the Roth IRA is $35,000. So you could do $7,000 a year for five years. But there's, there's quite a bit of rules here, but there may be some planning opportunities with this too. Yeah, I think I think where you know this becomes like this new rule is great in many ways, but you know, talk to a couple of clients who've used one plan for years, and you know, like I'll give you an example of one actually this week we talked and uh, we're kind of going back and forth via email said, do I need to change my strategy? And the answer is yes. So this gentleman may be listening. He um, has an account for his wife, five twenty nine has been funding that with the intention of just changing beneficiaries for his children. And while this is great because now there's a potential for her to roll these funds, but the key here with this rule is they're trying to prohibit people from um, kind of gaming the system, so to speak. So that's why they're giving you, you know, the account has to have been open for 15 years. The funds have to have been deposited within a five-year window or at least over five years ago. Right. And it has to be the original designated beneficiary. So previously, you were able to say, hey, I'll have an account for one child. We'll just transfer from one to the next to the next. Uh, change the beneficiary because they're staggered. And I think I've got enough money or enough to supplement what, you know, they don't get in grants or scholarships or whatever it may be. And that's been okay to do. But now you start thinking, okay, well, what else can we do this? And if you already have funds built up in one larger one, do you set those other accounts up and start thinking about them to use them as kind of a Roth IRA for the future? That is one thing that I think that, you know, you may not be able to gift the, the funds to them until they're 30 years old. If you've got a child who's 15, you may not use those funds for college, but if you're still putting funds aside somewhere, you're fully funded in other areas. What a great tool. Mm-hmm. To be able to kind of go ahead and put funds aside in a Roth with the tax advantage, essentially, because that's what you're doing, really. Well, in uh, the example that you were talking about earlier with the with the client that you were talking about earlier this week, the 529 plan, if if he is the owner, his wife 
is the beneficiary of the 529 plan. At least from what I'm seeing so far, that designated beneficiary doesn't have to be a child, right? No, she can move those funds. But then, so then there's an opportunity for her Correct. to move that money from the 529 into a Roth IRA in her name, Correct. right? And still some further data probably need to come out around this, but is there going to be an income limit? Because with, with Roth IRAs, depending on what their combined income is, they may not be able, they may not be eligible to make a contribution to a Roth IRA. But if you have this money in a 529 that you have an opportunity to move it to the Roth, there may not be an income limit around that. That's right. Possibly, right? As of right now, there's As no of right income now, I don't limit see that. on that. Yeah. yeah. That's right. So you can move those. So where you have more difficult time putting funds into a Roth because of income limitations, you may be able to utilize this. And, you know, we're going to get more and more information on this. I mean, it's still, you know, they, they roll these rules out like Secure Act 2.0, and they're still trying to figure out how they want to, you know, define certain parts of it or elements of it. And it makes it difficult from a planning perspective. So we're going to get a lot more information mm -hmm. on this. But as of right now, the account needs to have been maintained and open for a minimum of 15 years. The contributions have to have been made at least five years ago, and you have to have the original designated beneficiary. But what a fantastic tool that we can use, that we can put additional funds aside. And so this is something I think we're going to be really utilizing here in the future. I think it's going to be a fantastic additional opportunity to save funds and put funds aside. And what a great way to put funds aside for your children for their future. Hey, guys, thanks for joining us. We appreciate you. Go to realinvestmentadvice.com. If you have any questions, YouTube channel, The Real Investment Show. Click subscribe, like. We appreciate you all. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week.